expect that most of you already know Miss Florence Reese. I'm not a coal miner, as you well know, but I'm as close as I could be not to be one. My father was a coal miner who was killed in the mines, and my husband is slowly dying with black lung. And my husband and me was in the strike in the 30s in bloody Harlan County, and I do mean it is bloody, too. And they tell me, these miners say, we're going to stick it out unless Duke Power signs the contract till hell freezes over. nothing to lose but their chains and their union to gain so I say hang in there and I now this song I composed in the 30s and as you know I'm old as 40 years ago and I can't sing very well but you, you can ask the scabs and the gun thugs which side they're on because they're workers too come all you poor workers good news to you I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? If you go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses. Don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? 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 It's Machine Kills. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 62 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, I mean, th- this is an inevitable episode in, in many regards. One is, you know, we have to do our postmortem on Bessemer and Amazon and the union vote and all of that. Uh, you know, this is squarely within our beat, so we need to talk about it. But also uh, a long time coming in another regard in that um, to help us with the dis- this discussion, we're joined by Alex Press, who's a staff writer for Jacobin and one of my favorite labor reporters um, and somebody that we've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while. And so this is the, the perfect opportunity to do it. So thanks for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is very exciting for me. <laughs> uh very exciting for us as well, <laughs> but not a very exciting thing to be talking about <laughs> in regards to I wish it were an exciting thing where we could be like, yes, the people in Bessemer, the workers won. They scored a W and they fought back against Amazon. And But uh, I, I think as you put it in a really great recent piece you wrote for Jacobin about this, the headline is, right, like, Amazon waged a brutal anti-union campaign. Unsurprisingly, they won. Maybe we can start there. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people were, like, 
paying very close attention around the world to this vote in Bessemer in like a small town in Alabama, right? Um, but I think through a lot of the reporting and stuff that we uh, that we were seeing coming out about Amazon, a lot of the you know the bad publicity they were getting, a lot of the bad tweets they were doing, um, all of this, like we we saw that they were desperate to win this campaign um, against the workers in Bessemer. And while I think that like we all kind of got our hopes up, I, I, I think we all also knew that it was a very unlikely that the people in Bessemer were going to win. So maybe we could start there. Why is it unsurprising? Why was it unlikely? Yeah. So, I mean, as I was sort of watching other people's responses to this result roll in, I had this moment of sort of self-criticism because people did seem a little bit surprised by it. Uh, you know, I'm sort of scanning the social media feed or hearing from, you know, like friends or family who aren't particularly obsessed with politics and, and like labor the way that all of us are. Um, but, you know, I think maybe the message just didn't quite get across that when people said, you know, the odds of this are overwhelming and if they won, it would mean this, that it was always that conditional if they won, because you wanted to lay out the stakes and how massive this would be as a victory um, for the sake of sort of educating people about the power Amazon has, you know, the incredible odds that these workers were up against. But almost people, I think, might have assumed that because of there was so much coverage of it, it meant that there really was going to be a win, right? This was going to be a turning point, you know, in the labor movement. Mm. Um, and of course, I think there's pressure in media to, to sort of amp that up. Um, I certainly tried not to do that and to lay out all the reasons that, you know, the odds were against the workers. Um, and when we get into that, you know, the anti-union campaign that Amazon waged in one sense was exactly what was expected and what you could have predicted in advance, even without seeing the reporting or seeing what they actually did. And what that looked like was, you know, at the start, they, as soon as the workers filed a NLRB petition to, um, you know, have a union vote, Amazon hired consultants that they were paying, I think, I think the number was $3,200 a day. Um, to help them wage war on their workers. And I actually, over the weekend, I was inspired this past weekend to reread a book called Confessions of a Union Buster, which is a really funny book um, by a strange character who is one of the innovative entrepreneurs in this field, which is now a billion dollar a year field <laughs> and a uniquely American one, union busting. Um, so these consultants, they're not lawyers um, and they're not really experts in anything specific that, you know, it would seem worth giving them this much money. All that they advise companies on is how to bust unions, right? So they're just experts in lying and intimidation. Um, and so that's why they get paid this much money. And when they get hired, you know, they go down to Bessemer, they set up in the, you know, the nicest motel they've got in the town, and they get to work training the supervisors and the managers in how to wage war inside that warehouse. Um, and, you know, what we saw at Amazon was that it's captive audience meetings. So it's meetings that last hours where workers hear from their supervisors and their managers about why they shouldn't vote for a union. Um, you know, it's it's having anti-union propaganda throughout the warehouse, whether it's pins, you know, vote no pins whether it's in the bathroom flyers that say vote no, whether it's text after text from your boss every day saying vote no. Um, and so that that really wears on people. 
Um, and it, it can wear you down. The point of an anti-union campaign is to create this feeling of exhaustion and fear and confusion and then tie that to the union and say that it's the union that brought this in. And if you want this fear and you know exhaustion to dissipate, you're going to have to take the union out. And they did. Yeah. You know, one thing that was also interesting to see was how they also turned a uh, labor law, it seemed, against the organizing effort, like their attempts to expand the bargaining unit to include more employees, while also knowing that like turnover rates would, uh, you know, undermine the amount of people who might be willing to say yes for to a union. There's this article I read after after yours from the Times about interviews with workers who said no, and uh, a point was raised by this economist that maybe employees who leave a company um, that has a high turnover rate should get a say in whether or not a company unionizes. Right. But we're not, so we're not at that point yet, but I am curious, like what you think also about, you know, in that sort of vein of thought, like, are there things that can be done large scale in re- that Amazon was able to do that we might be able to like block uh, in a next effort, right? To try to unionize. Like, does it does it also require that like you know sometimes unions have to keep smaller bargaining units or fight against that if it's possible? Is it that uh, you have to target places that don't have low turnover rates? Is it you know that in a situation like this, Amazon just had every single advantage you know on its side and was able to turn the effort against them? Well, Amazon definitely has every advantage on its side, and I don't think there's anything in the short or medium term future that is going to change that. That's always going to be the case, and yet there's you know there's no way around this. You have to tackle Amazon if you want to rebuild the labor movement in this country. Um, and so, you know, given that there are certain tweaks that can be made, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the Pro Act, which is this big labor law reform bill um, that does address some of these things that I think would have made a big difference in the campaign. Um, so, you know, for example, Ed, you mentioned this bargaining unit size. Um, and, you know, this is a point of contention and it's pretty complicated even with the labor within the labor movement in that, you know, fundamentally we as organizers or as a movement or whatever you want to think of yourself as you want as many workers as possible to have collective bargaining rights and to have power on the job to organize. Um, So you want the biggest unit possible, right? Philosophically or theoretically, that's what you want. In practice, though, how you get there can, in fact, be about getting a foot in the door in a unit and building from there. And so, you know, in the past, a lot of unions have done this. Workers have said, okay, we all in this department or this subdivision within this facility and this company are going to organize. We're strong right now. We know each other. We have the trust. We have the relationships. And maybe our department is having these huge problems that are very distinct. And so, you know, this is what got us to organize. And, you know, in the past, it used to be easier for workers to do that, to say, okay, we're starting here. This is our unit size. Um, And then they vote within that unit. Um, You know, what Amazon did here was say, actually, no, um, that doesn't make sense. These workers don't have a unique, special collective interest. What this unit should be is actually X, Y, and Z. And so as they, as you referenced, they expanded the bargaining unit from around 1,500 workers to around 6,000 workers. Um, and a key part of that is, you know, because under existing labor law, employers have standing to have a say, which I think we're very used to in this country because that's been the case for a long time. Um, that, okay, sure. Well, it's my business. I should have, you know, I should have the right to sort of bargain with the union about and my own workers about what makes sense for them. But if you take a step back, 
there's really no reason for that to be true, right? Why does your boss have a say over whether, you know, what you and your workers do with your legally protected rights that you've won? These are your rights. It's not a, you know, debate. You're not fighting to win them. You already have collective bargaining rights. Um, and so it's very strange that employers have this standing. And that's a big thing that the PRO Act does change. It removes that employer standing. So there would be no sense in which, you know, Amazon or any other employer could go to the NLRB and say, actually, we think, you know, truck drivers and temp seasonals that we haven't even hired yet and so on and so forth also need to be in this unit. You know, the NLRB would say that's none of your business, what your workers do. Um, they get to decide if they're going to organize or if they're not and what that will look like. Um, and in this case, I think it was a really obvious situation because it was such a massive change in the bargaining size um, that, it, you know, I th- to me, I think that was sort of the key moment in this campaign. Um, because when you inflate the unit to that size, then all of a sudden the workers and the union organizers have so much more work to do to get to those new workers. Right. Like just the sheer amount of decision-making power that the employers have over what a union ought to look like um, and what it can do, right? Like, yeah, I mean, this is like enshrined in law and it, it's it's not surprising. I mean, as, as you wrote in your piece, right, you say, quote, in the United States, every step of unionization process is stacked against workers. It is a miracle that anyone ever unionizes. I mean, and I think just even that one point that you just brought up, right, that like employers can be like, no, we get to decide what the unit is that is uh, going to be included in this union vote. And and it's like, I mean, it, it does seem like there, there's obviously a legal aspect here, but there does seem to be a kind of deep cultural political aspect here as well about like how we in the United States understand the purpose of a union. And it seems to be no longer about like, yeah, this is adversarial to capital, right? This is not just advocating for the rights of workers, but it is but it is meant to be set in opposition to the interest of capital in that advocacy. But it seems like right now, it, it, it's like if a union is to exist, it must exist in a way that is like, uh, a friend to the boss, right? It's a, it's a friend to the, it, it represents the worker's interest in the boardroom, but it sits in the boardroom. It, it sits among capital. Yeah. May, maybe we could talk a little bit more before we get into the really interesting and I think important questions about like, what is the, na- the national labor relations board and how does this kind of was the processes and politics of of the NLRA talk a little bit more about just like that that culture of how unions are viewed in the United States yeah i mean exactly what you said it's sort of like a friend to the boss or you know it's okay maybe it's a fake friend but there's at least <laughs> <laughs> there's at least some sense of a sort of cooperative relationship and you see this all the time i mean among labor leaders themselves, they say, you know, we want what's best for the company. And we actually are going to, and sometimes, and, you know, I don't mean to be too critical of that kind of language, because I feel, I think they feel forced to say stuff like that. And some of them genuinely, you know, buy so much into this idea that they do mean it when they say that we want what's best for the company. Um, But, you know, really, um, you know, back in the day, or at least among a certain fragment of the labor movement, you know, unions were schools of democracy meant to fight for the interests of the working class, not just your members, not just the people in your shop, but actually the class as a whole. And that was sort of always the ideal, right? They never really achieved that in practice. 
Um, but at least some of us, that's what we see unions as sort of doing. And in that sense, you know, then it becomes really confusing. Why would the boss have a say over the sort of fundamental characteristics of such an institution? How could, you know, isn't that letting the enemy, you know, behind, you know, into your lines and doing your strategy, you know, in collaboration mm-hmm. with them? Um, no wonder Fox you're in the hen house. Right, exactly. And then no wonder, you know, there's so many hindrances to these institutions when the boss has, you know, his hand in in creating them. Um, and so I think, you know, there is, we have sort of gone so far down from sort of this strength and this militancy um, that I think a lot of people sort of just have lowered expectations about what you, what kind of unions they can build and what they can use them for, right? Um, and I think that's where, how we get mm-hmm. where we are today. Um, and it's, and it's really important in this conversation that like, we really do acknowledge just how much decline there has been. Right. I mean, this, the fact that this union fight got so much coverage and was sort of seen as such a big deal is because, you know, we can't organize shops this big, especially in the South. Um, this would actually have been historic and it is historic every time, you know, there's, even like a semi-large strike in this country still. I mean, we average, you know, maybe a dozen strikes of over a thousand workers in a shop, you know, per year, a dozen. So everyone is huge news. The The sense of lowered expectations comes from a genuine historical sort of drought that we're in, in, in labor militancy and organizing. And I think as we rebuild and as that changes, the sense of possibility also changes too. So these things are not immutable. You know, if the labor movement is down. It is not out. It has been here before. You know, things have been worse in the past than they are now as far as, you know, number of people in unions, num- amount of militancy. Uh, we used to totally lack any labor law regime at all, right? There was no sort of guidance whatsoever mm-hmm. um, or laws around this. There was no, you know, force by, of the state that made, you know, bosses even have to recognize unions to the extent that they do today. Um, so, but I do think it is important to sort of get a sense of how far we've fallen, right? long said and we said on tmk that like really the the only class right now with any sense of solidarity or militancy amongst it is capital right like capital has a lot of solidarity with capital capital is highly militant i mean even you know you you mentioned that you had just reread that book confessions of a union buster and like that is the militancy of capital right there like the fact that this industry exists the fact that these people exist right and that we can point to like you know amazon you know the, the reports were coming out i i think from uh, lauren Gurley, who's you know ed's colleague uh, around like amazon using like the pinkertons and stuff like that right like it seems uh like so much of what amazon and bezos uh have been doing just seems so like comically 
like like bear like robber baron uh type of like militant capitalism um but but like that that is the case and that that has long been the case as well Right. I mean, and it's funny that you mentioned the Pinkertons because, I mean, it's also this sense of like historical and institutional memory among the capitalist class. Right. Like, you know, I think I I even say this about myself or like my friends a lot that were obsessed with the past. Right. Because in the labor movement, everyone's always sort of, you know, when there's so little going on now, just sort of like, you know, when you're in middle age and you're reminiscing about the parties in college or something, you know, there's so little going on right now with the labor movement's victories that we look back all the time. Right. And we talk about the 30s or the 40s or the 70s, say, and, you know, public sector militancy. Um, But we're not the only ones that are reaching back into the past for these strategies, right? I mean, Amazon has, you know, the Pinkertons have rebranded. They're better than ever. Um, They're more flexible than ever. And they've got, you know, great graphic design. And they're still, you know, but they're still doing exactly what they always did, just, you know, as the title of, I think, the famous book about this is like blackjacks to briefcases, right? So instead of actually killing mm. workers now, there's, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, distorting their bargaining unit sizes at NLRB hearings and otherwise sort of spying on them. Um, but this sense of solidarity, you know, I think is important, especially when we talk about Amazon, because every other employer across the country and even around the world, you know, sort of watches this stuff because Bezos really is willing to be this sort of like vanguard, um, in trying new things to defeat workers, you know, certainly in testing new types of surveillance on the job. I mean, you imagine the rest of the ruling class sitting in the, in the boardrooms and cheering them on, right? And seeing what works and what doesn't, and then generalizing those practices. So when we say that, like, what happens in Bessemer really has, um, you know, bearing on everybody, every other worker, it really does, because these lessons get shared, you know, in the same way that the lessons that our side has, you know, when we win and we lose, we share them, you know, the bosses do the same thing. Um, and so I think it is, you know, important to understand this sort of broader, this broader sort of coordination that goes on, on the other side too. Oh God, Bezos yeah. is the linen of capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Er- earlier you said how we cannot really have like a resurgence in the labor movement unless we go through Amazon And I wanted also to return to that point because I feel like what you said is a key point. Like there are a a small group of companies that are willing to be the tip of the spear, you know, Amazon with working conditions, Uber with the gig economy, where they're willing to take the brunt of the heat because they can deal with it or because they have achieved like a frontier in some state or some regulatory environment that other companies would need to take like a decade to catch up to and can start the experiments already. And, you know, so I I wanted to ask when you say that there's the path is through Amazon, are you thinking also of that Vanguard? Are you also thinking about like Amazon sizes as an employer in this country or like compared to other employers, just a lack of a union there at all? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of all of that, right? I mean, it is obviously true that the quantitative you know, data is important here that, you know, we're talking about the second largest private employer in the country, probably, you know, will be the largest private employer, you know, shortly. Um, And so it's just true that when you have a place that in a lot of counties ends up being sort of the company employer, you know, it's the only one offering, you know, a $15 wage or whatever, you know, it, it really is important that if you don't have organization at that company, it affects everybody else in the area. Um, and brings down conditions. But I also think of it as far as, you know, Amazon's effects on its industry in general and also sort of adjacent industries. Um, So, for example, like its last mile delivery operation, right? It 
you know, it, it deploys people who are not direct employees through either Amazon Flex or Amazon Delivery Service Partners. You know, people who are subcontracted, who work all hours, these are the people that sort of are most famously the people forced to piss in bottles um, because they just have, there's no time or sort of organization of the job to give them time to use the bathroom or access to bathrooms. So these people are really pressed, right? I mean, there's been, you know, lots of writing by and about these workers um, and what their job actually consists of, the surveillance, the stress, all of that. Um, but they also are pressing, you know, unionized competitors, right? So Amazon is undercutting, for example, UPS drivers. Um, it's forcing other companies and employees at other companies to work, you know, seven days a week, to work at all hours. Um, and so it's bringing down, you know, the sort of job standards that already exist, right? At some of the, you know, pa- most powerful union um, contracts in the country, Um, And so, and this is true, not just for that. I mean, that's just one example of an industry, but this is just true across the board, right? That Amazon does effectively bring down the conditions for other workers and in other industries simply by the size that it is and sort of the intensity of work that it is sort of forcing people to endure it. All of a sudden standards just are dropping right across the country and people's expectations drop with it, right? When one of the biggest employers in the country you know, has such sort of intense expectations on what work should feel like and what it should do to your body, um, you know, that has an effect on everybody else. And so, yeah, for all of these reasons, um, I think it's just a fact that you do have to go through Amazon if you're ever really going to talk about being able to take on, you know, the capitalist class in general, Um, whether we're talking about like in a revolutionary sense or just in the sense of having unions, you know, if you're you're always going to have this massive massive enemy that, you know, can't be touched at all, then you're forever going to have like a lot of weakness. Right. Um, and I'll just add that, you know, RWDSU's president himself said this, and it's something I do agree with. I spoke to him like after the, um, vote count happened and he too said, you know, that for all the sort of, um, feelings and criticisms and whatnot of this union campaign. It's just a fact that you do have to go through Amazon. And, you know, I've been, I've had criticisms of things, you know, that happened during that campaign, but, you know, at the very least, this was a union that actually was willing to take on a serious union drive, um, at this company. And, um, I, I, for one had been hoping someone would do that for a while. And so, you know, I'm glad that we've gotten that first Mm -hmm. attempt. Yeah, and I think it's important to see that like this this is a first attempt, right? Like this is a shot across the bow. It's a bellwether in many regards of, you know, if it had won, I mean, fantastic, right? Like maybe that would have been the first domino and we would have seen just like a wave of unionization efforts at other warehouses and stuff. I mean, even that, right? Even that, that you have to unionize like warehouse by warehouse. There's no uh, sectoral unionization, right? It's like, you know, we can just unionize all Amazon warehouses all at once. It has to be this like domino effect of like you have to get one win and then hopefully that provides inertia momentum for another win and another win you know thinking here as well right like the uh the workers in bessemer had their own their own complaints and their own arguments for why unionization was necessary also thinking about like workers at the dch1 warehouse in chicago that are you know kind of building this movement around the stop the mega cycle right where like these workers in the chicago amazon warehouse are having to work this uh the, what's being known as a mega cycle but it's a, it's a graveyard shift that goes from um 1:20 a.m. 
to 11.50 a.m., right? This, like, uh, you know, just just massively, not only just a, like, long shift, right? Like, 10 and a half hours long, but also a shift at, at, at the absolute worst possible time to have to to have to be working as a, as a person living in a society um, that's not built around that. I, I think what that shows us as well is, yeah, just how much of an uphill battle this is, right? Like every, every single warehouse has to create its own campaign, its own movement um, about like why we deserve a union and why our, our conditions are uniquely terrible and awful. Yeah. And I mean, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like I'm always such a downer. I don't know how I couldn't be if we're talking about like organizing (laughs) Amazon. It's just, I don't know. I know that we're all supposed to be upbeat and cheerleaders. I'm very bad at that. But I think we haven't systematically laid out some of the unique challenges of organizing Amazon. And you're, Jathan, I mean, you're bringing them up by talking about warehouse by warehouse. But I mean, just to be clear, like we're talking about a, you know, a company that builds in redundancies, right. That has incredibly high turnover that, you know, you bring up DCH one, you know, they are, they closed that Chicago warehouse, which was very well organized. And the workers there believe it's directly because that they were so organized that the company decided to just close it and shift them Mm -hmm. into worse conditions. Right. And, and certainly in Europe, when there are strikes, we've seen Amazon just reroute orders, um, Certainly, I'm sure Ed has talked to, you know, Amazon workers before who complain about this. I certainly have about, you know, 100% turnover. How are you supposed to build an organizing committee in your shop when everyone is gone within, you know, six months or something? Um, and again, you know, I've, I've written about this in, in pieces before about this Bessemer campaign. But like one comparison was, say, the auto plants being organized in the 30s. And, you know, they, you know, they had a similar sort of size, workforce, number of facilities across the country. And yet a key difference was that the Flint, you know, plant, which is where the big sit down strike happened, that sort of famously got the auto industry, you know, got the union kind of implanted in the industry and um, was a huge turning point for organizing that sector. You know, that was, there were something like 50,000 workers in that plant. And so even though there were workers spread elsewhere, that was about 25% of the workforce, there's just simply no kind of similar situation for Amazon. Um, there's Amazon's headquarters. So we would be talking about white collar workers, say in Seattle, that is that size. But really, when we're talking about the warehouses and blue collar workers, there is no one strategic facility that labor can sort of concentrate its organizing efforts on. And this was a huge problem with this sort of analogy from recent years, which was Walmart, you know, that campaign really couldn't get implanted in any of these facilities because we're talking about small workforces spread out across so many different stores across the country rather than any sort of concentrated strategic shop. Um, so it's, it's immense as far as the difficulties in place here. I mean, that is absolutely right. And, and it connects as well to, I mean, right, right. We're coming fresh off of a, off of another loss with Proposition 22. And, and, and so like the, you know, the wounds of that are still stinging, um, with this happening. But I, I, I think all of these things are obviously connected. They're linked together, right? Like this, you know, Uber may having the win and Uber and Lyft and, and the, 
you know, those platforms having their win in California, Amazon having their win here, right? Like all of this is linked together into uh, understanding the conditions of um, this mode of, of, of capitalist militancy, but also labor, of labor conditions, right? Of, of one that is like, yeah, hyper flexible, hyper precarious. Um, you know, you've been talking about the, the turnover rates. Um, you know, I, I, I read a, a, an academic article uh, recently by Katie G. Wells um, and some of her colleagues who did this, this long, uh, uh, long study of Uber drivers in the Washington, D.C. area doing all these interviews with Uber drivers. And one of the things that they found is something 70 some odd percent of the Uber drivers that they were interviewing um, had never interacted with another Uber driver. Um, like, this, so th- there wasn't even like, there, there was no solidarity. There wasn't even like awareness um, or interaction, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they did this study over the course of, I think, like five years, and they re interviewed some of these people, fi- some of these same people five years later, being like, so have you like talked to any other Uber driver? And in that five years, most of them still had never interacted with another Uber driver. Right. And, um, and that, that is largely by design. Like that is something that companies like Uber are able to do. Um, that's not always the case because I also have a friend, um, Karen Gregory, who's a sociologist in Scotland, um, who also works particularly um, doing like ethnographic research with delivery drivers. And there they actually do have um, solidarity and they have organizing and they have WhatsApp groups and stuff like that. But I think it shows this like really stark difference between the U.S. conditions and the conditions that we see um, in Europe and in like South America, where, yeah, like it just seems like there, there's a unique isolation and alienation of labor um, in the U.S. Even even by even working on the same platform, just the national conditions are so drastically different. It seems like the reason why in the states um, there seems to be this like sense of individualism is it all goes back to that like you know the rugged uh, rugged individualism the american exceptionalism that you know we have to the only people that can do anything is ourselves and we can't rely on anyone else and i think that plays a lot in that people especially workers in the us have a long way to go to kind of get ourselves back to that again because for so long we were just like kind of beaten to the head and told that you know it's all about yourself and no one else it's like society it's not society anymore it's you and your family and that's all yeah, I mean, this goes back to like our interview with Vina Dubal, and there we were talking about this kind of like myth of entrepreneurialism, right? Which is like very much something that's sold, at least with the gig economy people. I don't think anybody in the Amazon warehouses is being sold this myth of like they are entrepreneurs, um, but it does seem to be uh, an overarching kind of myth in, in the American ethos and understanding of labor. I mean, there is something to be said for that, for sort of the role of this myth and ideology. But also, you know, that sort of, to me, follows from the actual conditions in the United States where there is very little sort of pooling of vulnerability or sense of shared sacrifice when it comes to welfare programs, when it comes to health insurance. You know, there's very little in practice that shows you that those myths are not true, right? And so there's a, a reason that workers then kind of can fall into this sort of thinking or not try to fight against it, right? Right. Um, and so I, you know, 
not to be too predictable, but yeah. it's, you know, I don't, I don't think the ideas are why, you know, Uber drivers aren't organizing in the United States, but rather, you know, they don't see anything in their existing society that proves that, you know, there, anybody could come together for any reason. And so when the boss is so in, dead set on keeping you apart, you know, you, it's hard to fight against that, right? When you don't have a reason to believe it's do, you can win. And something to that point too is, you know, in New York City, they have, you know, there's a much more full-time, you know, group of drivers there because of the regulations in the city are such that you need to get a license, you need to register, you need to hit these sort of requirements, these barriers to entry that leave it to largely full-time drivers uh, who've put in the money into the, you know, into the insurance, into the cost of the license, into their car. There, they may have these WhatsApp groups, they may have uh, these like physical places where, you know, we'd meet when I was doing organizing with the drivers where like, you know, they would hang out. Uh, in parking lots or in between trips at rest stops, uh, you know, in, you know, places where they could at least take a few minutes break while they were working. But even then, it's still dominated by these ideas that I think, like you're saying, you know, because the larger reality that you you walk through every single day is that is there's none of that. There's no solidarity. You can't eat that. We got the podcast. <laughs> they're getting riled up. Like you said, you know, you go through life every single day. There's these social insurance programs are shit. You're constantly encouraged and told that the world begins and ends with you and everything reinforces that. And you're not even given a chance to, if you wanted to, rely on other people or be vulnerable with other people or struggle together with other people, right? And if you do, you usually get punished for it pretty quickly. Uber will. Lyft will, a lot of these companies will crush you if you then try to organize in this misery, right? And that's also, I think, another important factor in it too, how quick and absolute the backlash can be and the suppression of those sort of instincts. All absolutely correct. I mean, as as good materialist as we are here on TMK, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we have to understand that the, the, the conditions... Uh, per, set up these these barriers, and then the the ideas and the ideology that is a that is a justification myth, right? That that's not that's not the cause. That's like that's the post hoc rationalization that's then used to justify the material conditions and the effects thereof. And I just wanted to bring it back to concretely this union campaign at Amazon. Um, you know, there have been you know, several articles where workers who voted against the union are quoted and their explanations are given. And it's very similar to, you know, I know Ed has some organizing experience. It's very similar to just about any other union campaign, right? Where people, it's not that people are ideologically opposed to unions, right? Even in the United States, even in the 21st century, you know, most workers are kind of in the middle, right? You have a few diehard at union advocates, you know, the people who start the campaign, the people who are in the organizing committee, who are willing to spend their very precious few hours that's free doing this work. And you similarly have a few people at, in the workplace who are ideologically opposed, say maybe they had a really bad experience with a union that, you know, their parents were in or something, or they're diehard conservatives, you know, but most workers just are on the fence and don't know much about it. Um, and so it's a matter of whether you can convince people not just that, you know, they should unionize, but actually a key part of that is that it's worth their time, right? That it's worth all of this stress that the boss is going to put on them. And that's what we saw in Bessemer is that a lot of workers just couldn't be convinced that they could win, right? They, you know, okay, a union wins. Won't, won't the boss just start fighting every day to make our lives worse because we voted union? Won't he close this warehouse? Won't they start firing people who speak up, right? And 
And it's very hard to cut through that sense of just absolute sort of defeat, right? The sense that no matter what you do, there's no evidence in your life that people like you actually have power. Um, So even if you do have that power, if you come together, getting your coworkers to believe in it and actually, you know, in the absence of any evidence um, suggesting that you're right when you say that you can fight and win, you know, that that's hugely difficult and it's a huge obstacle to overcome that demoralization. And I think in Bessemer, that was part of the, you know, the problem. It wasn't just that, you know, the boss has all this money and anti-union resources to play on that. It's also the fact that people who feel powerless don't act like they have any power, right? Um, and that just tastes, that's a true of any union drive in this country. And I think it was really on display in this one. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I remember hearing um, people, yeah, inter- like reading interviews with people in Bessemer and and, and so on, talking about um, as well, like the issue of healthcare. Right? It's like you know, my healthcare is tied to my employment at this warehouse, and like, what if? what if the boss takes that away, <laughs> right? Like I can't afford that, which I think, it, you know, just goes to another another point here as well, that something like Medicare for All is uh, fundamentally a pro-working um, class policy, um, which is like necessary to build that worker power. I mean, uh, it, it also just sets up so many chicken and egg questions as well, right? It's like, um, we need Medicare for all to take away another avenue of power from the bosses, but how do we get Medicare for all without taking away the power from the bosses? Totally. Yeah. And you get into those questions very quickly, I think, in talking about how to build working class power in the United States of America. Yeah, without just like a, a complete overhaul revolution of the system, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, we can fantasize about that. But I, I think what this conversation is showing is, no, we, like we need to talk about how to like what is the slow march through the institutions? What is that slow march of building worker power. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that it is a slow march, right? Like, as you were saying earlier, Alex, right? Like, like we have fallen so far and we have a lot that we have to build back up before we can even start building more. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people is like, look, even if we're talking about this revolutionary overthrow, how are you going to, how are people going to get to that point if they can't even vote yes for a union? Right. And so unions are not, unions are not revolutionary institutions, but if that's your goal, then you, you know, you need unions to actually start building up that collective power, right. And, and getting people to cut through demoralization and demand more. And the, and we reach the limits of what can be you know, sort of demanded at the collective bargaining table, you know, in an agreement. And we can move beyond those things into more radical demands at the political level and so on. But you can't get there without actually having collective power with your coworkers, right? And actually convincing your community that you have power and that, you know, you don't have to exist at the whim of someone like Jeff Bezos. Right before we started recording, I read this uh, survey that was published by Protocol, which is a, a kind of like tech and policy news site. But they did this survey of over 1,500 tech employees um, across the U.S. from C-suite level executives all the way down to, to associates. But 
the survey here was was quite revealing, right? They were asking them, like they were asking these tech employees what their stance was on a range of issues. Um, and, and a few results really jumped out at me. So like uh, 77% of all tech employees surveyed um, think that the tech industry is now too powerful. Uh, 73% say that uh, they want the government to regulate artificial intelligence. 40% now say that they think technology in general does more harm than good. And these are employees in the tech sector at the tech industry, which is just absolutely what, like that's such a wild shift in opinion from, you know, someone uh, like, you know, like myself and Ed who have been like, you know, keeping our finger on the pulse of the tech sector for a very long time. This is like unthinkable, um, even a few years ago, that this would be the survey results. Though I have to say, one thing that always struck me was Ben Tarnoff, um, who I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Um, he edits Logic Magazine, like a tech, sort of critical tech publication. Um, I remember he wrote an article, I think, for The Guardian during the 2016 election that analyzed donations to the Sanders campaign. And it was like tech workers had given more money to the Sanders campaign than like Hillary Clinton's campaign by like 20 to one or something like it was just an incredible amount of donations happening. And people were really, you know, I think surprised by that. And I think it was under discussed at the time that there is this undercurrent in the tech world, even among sort of highly paid software engineers or whatever, um, sort of the the full-time employees of these companies, that there is something very wrong with these companies' ability to function as they do with no restraints at all, right? And so I think, you know, even if they work at these evil companies, some of them are getting a firsthand sort of look at the the damage that can be done by that. And so I'm I'm glad to hear that it's, you know, it's sweeping more than ever. Uh, but I think there's been, at least for a few years at least, you know, it's why we see these tech organizing campaigns. People are really freaked out that get a close-up view to what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that uh, we have a lot of great people that work within the tech sector that listen to TMK and, and are very much feeling that, that same thing. I mean, so I think, there, there is this overarching kind of shift in opinion, right? That like, you know, this is capitalism out of control, right? I mean, we can argue about that, that this is actually just capitalism doing what capital has been doing for hundreds of years. But there is, you know, in a general sense, um, this, this idea that, oh, like they've gone too far. Amazon has gone too far. Uber has gone too far. Google, Facebook, you know, they've all, they've all gone too far. Can you tell us a little bit about the the PRO Act, right, which is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, um, which, you know, passed the House, got the got the stamp of endorsement from Biden himself, the working class president. (laughs) (laughs) But (sighs) I mean, (laughs) (laughs) oh, God, I feel you on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the sigh that happened when it really hit me that Biden was going to be our president was really uh, something to bold. <laughs> yeah. The but you're right. pro labor president since the, FDR, just a low ed, bar. Yeah, extremely low bar. In the president's sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too contrarian on this, but, you know, to me, the idea that any anyone who's in charge of the, 
of the global empire can be pro working class. Just like, sorry, that's just factually incorrect. You'd have to have a very strange view of what the working class is, you know, globally to ever think that's accurate as a description. Um, But you are right that he did come out in favor of the pro act. Um, So I think the thing, one thing to say at the start is, you know, to me, at least this stuff sounds really boring. Like the protecting the right to organize act is just like, what is this? What does this have to do with like tech being out of control? Um, it's certainly not my forte to talk about legislative efforts, right. Or whatever, you know, I want to talk to the workers, but in this case, it actually, you know, I think it very directly ties into these sort of bigger concerns for people who don't normally read about like labor law, right. That there's this sense that there's unrestrained sort of power being exercised by people at the head of companies like Amazon, which is correct, you know, and, you know, they're more powerful than ever and the inequality is higher than ever. Right. And so, you know, Bezos, you know, gained whatever number of billion dollars during the pandemic as the bottom, you know, sort of segment of the working class in this country faced eviction and starvation. Right. And so things have gotten worse than ever. Um, and a big part of that, again, comes back to workers' rights and workers' power. Um, it might seem I think kind of crazy to people who really don't know about sort of the role that unions and workers themselves played in sort of winning the things that we have, but there's no more effective sort of tool in sort of bringing in the bosses and their sort of um, allies in Congress and whatnot, getting them under control than workers actually exercising power. Right. Um, And, you know, that means higher wages, which only get one when workers are empowered to sort of demand more, right? If they don't have these sort of legal abilities to demand more, they'll never get more, right? And so we get this sort of escalating inequality and whatnot that's happening. So the PRO Act comes in and is, I, I would say, like the most ambitious sort of labor law reform bill that we've had in a long time. Um, And so every like 10 years or so, like, maybe 15 years, there's a new effort at a labor law reform. Um, The reason for these efforts is that, as we've sort of referenced throughout, labor law as it currently exists is completely stacked in favor of the employer um, at every stage. So whether that's, as we saw with the Amazon campaign, in trying to get a union, whether that's in the sense of once you've won a union, getting a first contract, whether you already have a union and it's about enforcing that contract and sort of, you know, if the boss is breaking the law and violating your rights, getting the boss to deal with any kind of penalty for doing that. So all throughout the process, you're sort of up against this incredibly unfair labor law regime. So the PRO Act seeks to sort of address that at every stage. It's it's pretty comprehensive, right? So as I've said with the Amazon campaign, you know, it removes employer standing to have a big say over what your union looks like. It speeds up the process by which you can have that election. It actually creates serious financial penalties for when the boss breaks the law. So an unfair labor practice, for example, might be what Amazon did with um, when it got a mailbox installed by USPS um, on its campus Mm -hmm. during this mail-in ballot, which is very strange in many ways, and we could talk about it for a while, but I'll just say, you know, they sort of, the NLRB said that they couldn't have a Dropbox um, on their premises during this mail-in balloting, um, and they went ahead and got USPS to install a mailbox, right? And so if that's found to be what's called a ULP, um, you know, what the most that they'll sort of have to do, they might rerun the election, um, the union election, um, but in general, the most sort of penalty they'll have is, you know, they'll have to agree to like, 
you don't have a sort of a sign set up at the warehouse that says like, we won't break the law anymore. You have the right to organize. And like, these are your legal rights, <laughs> you know, at like the billboard that has like other stuff that you would just never read right at your sort of place of employment that has like, I don't know, like the bus schedule. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it doesn't matter at all. No one reads this sign and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't give anyone a sense of empowerment. Um, sometimes when an employer breaks the law, you know, ultimately two years down the line, they're told they have to sort of pay back a certain amount of that worker's wages if they fired a worker. Um, But often they have to pay back no money at all because that worker got a different job and sort of made an income. And so they, you know, through the, the existing law, they don't actually have to pay anything. Here, you know, the ULPs will come with, you know, tens of thousands of dollar fines per practice per day. Um, So for a lot of employers, it would be very quick um, sort of penalty for them. Uh, It says, you know, includes the fact that you can have secondary boycotts and strikes, um, which I think would be, you know, pretty important for things like Amazon. So, you know, it's about like other workers being able to respect picket lines, um, things like that, that were key tools in building the labor movement in the first place. It has things like, for example, once you've won a union, you have to have a contract within one year or it goes to a sort of negotiator. Like a third party has both sides sit down and hammer out a contract. Um, Currently, about, I think it's 52% of unions that have won a union get a first contract. So half of people who win a union ultimately never get that first contract, which is crazy. Um, So all the attention that like we paid, I mean, this is, again, I, you know, it's hard not to be depressing when you write about the labor movement because you pay all this attention (laughs) to like the Bessemer campaign. And then if they had won, you would immediately have to start writing articles about how this is just the first step. And actually, Amazon is going to retain these anti-union consultants. They don't go away when that union vote, you know, is lost by the employer. Um, And they start sitting down and, you know, killing time until, one year is up and then they can start pushing for their workers to decertify their union because it hasn't gotten a contract yet. Um, And so all of these things, you know, the PROACT does address, it's sort of this wish list from the organized labor movement. Um, And the reason it's a wish list, I think, is because these efforts always fail, um, which is what I guess we'll have to talk about now, which is that these laws never pass. Um, and, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, organized labor, I think correctly was like, okay, we of all people know that you don't go to the bargaining table having already conceded. And so we are going to include everything that we think needs to be changed about existing labor law um, because we're not going to debate on this. We're just going to sort of throw everything at the wall um, and say, we're going to go for what we want and we're going to try to pass it. Um, Now what's, you know, it passed in the house and it's now, you know, I think it's just four short of having the 50 co-sponsors it needs in the Senate um, to sort of go to a vote. Now, once if it gets to that 50, then there's the filibuster. And so that will finally sort of be front and center as an issue unless people are willing to override the filibuster. This is not going to pass. Um, but the state of play right now is that I think just two days ago or something, um, there were five holdouts among Democrats in the Senate. Now there are four. Um, and there is a, a pretty interesting coalition of people on the left that, you know, is a lot of organized labor unions, um, as well as things, organizations like DSA that are really pushing for this to pass and prioritizing it. Um, and that's certainly responsible for the one person who has now folded and become a co-sponsor. But again, there are four people left 
And to be clear, there are no Republicans that are going to vote for this in the Senate. Um, I think there were mm. a couple in the House. What a surprise. I thought yeah. they were. Right. I mean, this is the thing is like, I, Not, I, yeah. <laughs> I hate the Democratic Party, um, but the idea that the Republican Party is whoa, any whoa, better. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. You're going to come on TMK and say something like that, that incendiary? <laughs> yeah. It's like the Democrats are horrible, but like the Republicans are straight up standing with their boots on your neck right now. And uh, so let's just like, you don't have to hold either of their hands here. They, there's no sense in which they would ever, you know, go against the chamber of Congress on uh, a chamber of commerce on something like this. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the chamber of commerce, can we talk about the chamber of progress? That's what <laughs> oh we my God. That, that, no, we have one. There is one. There's an group. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a, uh, I love the fact that one, like, you know, we have a lot of Republicans over the past few years that have been talking, you know, a good game about how they're going to become working class uh, champions, right? And we have an AstroTurf group, which they could, uh, you know, pay homage to or pay fealty or swear fealty to. And instead of that, they're still choosing to do the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, of course they are, because, like, it's just rhetoric, right? Um, but with these holdouts, these four... Democratic holdouts are, is it looking, you know, like they can be swayed? And if so, you know, if we're to get to the point where the pro act can also act, I'm curious what you think it would do in terms of tech organizing, because, you know, as you pointed, as you said earlier, that it's been, there was surprise that there was an undercurrent of like energy for Bernie Sanders in the tech uh, sector from employees there who are highly paid. But as we've seen with some of the organizing efforts, there is also like deep opposition, resistance, moral, uh, you know, outrage about some of the stuff they're being asked to do at these companies or what these companies are doing with them, with or without their support. You know, do you think that the PRO Act, if something like it were to happen, would push or incentivize workers who are otherwise like unwilling to unionize to unionize? Or is it just that it tips the scale. So once you finally unionize or once you finally try to enter that campaign, you're not going to get crushed by, you know, uh, the company having every single advantage, you know, to pull from. So, I mean, it does help you get less crushed, right? Or at least have a little more room to breathe um, or a little more of the state's backing. Um, but there is one thing that I didn't mention, though, that has been a source of immense controversy in the media because it concerns media workers. So, of course, that's what the media wants to write about, um, which is that what it does for freelancers or people who are classified as independent contractors, which does, I think, is you know a very common practice in the tech sector, even among white collar workers mm -hmm. there. Um, and so it gives you the PRO Act redefines under the NLRA. It gives you um, the ability to have collective bargaining rights that are protected by the law, even if you are classified as an independent contractor. Right. So currently, you know, I think to be clear, there are people that are all not considered employees do organize. They do it anyway. I mean, we talked about Uber drivers organizing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um but they don't have as many legal protections as people who are direct employees or W-2, right, employees have. Um, and so it's much easier for the boss to crush those efforts. Um, and the PRO Act ad adds that protection, right? So it doesn't reclassify you in a sense of like you all of a sudden have access to like minimum wage laws or overtime benefits, things like that. Um, which I think a lot of people have a strong case for saying that they should have, say, Uber drivers, for example. But it does give you those legal protections around collective bargaining. Um, and that does really actually is very relevant for 
the sort of nascent efforts within the tech sector to organize, you know, white collar workers, for example, are starting to organize. And, you know, I think at Google, the majority of people in that workforce are third party contractors or independent contractors. And so this would give them more protections as they go forward um, and give them a little more like, like leeway and wiggle room when it comes to getting the, the employer to actually recognize them and, and take seriously um, their demands. And so I think that is relevant in that it sort of broadens the tent of who can be a part of um, these organizing efforts. Again, people are already doing it without those protections, but this sort of adds the power of the state behind it um, so that the employer, you know, can't have every weapon at his disposal and feel like he has no restraints at all imposed on him when it comes to cracking down on these efforts. As to the first part of your question, how likely is the PRO Act <laughs> to pass? Um, I I don't do the sort of Hill punditry that I think a lot of people do. I think it's a, oh, it's a yeah. huge, there's, yeah. <laughs> there are many obstacles, um, just as, you know, in other parts of labor organizing, there are many obstacles to winning and you still do it, in part because even going along that path does build that power, right? And so, for example, you know, I think in Bessemer, they lost, but they now have, you know, a, a the union is calling it around 1,100 workers in that warehouse who voted union, who are still going to operate as a union without having won that vote, right? And so they're going to demand things of the employer there, and they're going to act like a union. And I think similarly, the PRO Act campaign, as it's currently happening, is a great excuse for organized labor and sort of the broader public to start building relationships and building power and actually doing political education. So for, like, for example, the unions that are leading that effort are using it as a way to get their members to actually be politically engaged in the sense, not just of like electoral politics and calling a Senator and telling him to you know change his view and support the pro act, but actually get a sense of how laws relate to their own quality of life and their own ability to fight. And so it's giving people an actual reason to have those one-on-one organizing conversations and give them something to build it around and say, okay, so if this doesn't pass going forward, we now know the exact obstacles in our path for winning a strong next contract or for getting, for example, people who are currently classified as contractors into our sort of organizing efforts. And so it's building those ties and, you know, it's providing, I think, a very useful um, campaign for both the unions, the workers, people in DSA um, to sort of coalesce and do, you know, to use a sort of a uh, very frequently used phrase, thanks to Jane McAlevey, um, to do tr- structure tests around how strong is your union membership? How organized are they? And how much can they actually push? You know, And I think making calls or having meetings with your coworkers and things like that are useful tests along that path. Um, and so it's sort of rebuilding a very unified labor movement. I mean, it's, it's very impressive how much unions have sort of coalesced around this as a priority. Um, and they've done it in a much more aggressive way than they did, for example, with EFCA under Obama, which was the Employee Free Choice Act, um, which Obama totally failed to give a shit about um, and sort of is the most recent precedent when it comes to labor law reform. Um, so unions this time are being very clear up front about this being a priority, about not ever sort of supporting candidates who don't back this going forward, um, but also saying that, okay, you know, win or lose on this, you know, we know exactly what we need to do. And we're, this is one step along that path.
I was talking to a friend recently about, you know, about the vote in Bessemer, about, you know, the, the practices, um, the, the kind of militant campaign by um, people like, you know, Amazon and, and so on. And I, w- I was talking recently to a friend um, in particular uh, about a, a piece that you had just, just wrote about Bezos's new solution. Um, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you wrote, quote, Bezos offered a solution that seems to stretch the definition of micromanagement, algorithmically shuffling workers around the warehouse based on which isolated muscle tendon groups they're repetitively grinding, Right. It, it it seems to me uh, like th- this is obviously, in my mind, a direct response to uh, the campaign in Bessemer, right? Like th- this is, you know, this is Bezos saying, uh, I hear you, I see you, you're valid, and you'll get nothing that you've asked for. But instead, In fact, you'll get more surveillance, right? Right. Instead, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're actually going to do this thing that ensures that your your muscles maintain maximum performance and productivity, right? To ensure that your knees don't give out all at once, but to shift some of that burden onto your wrist. So you also develop carpal tunnel syndrome and stuff like that. <laughs> right. I mean, it, can- it's amazing. It is amazing that like so how out of touch and insane these people are that they think that like, you know, complaints about like, oh, Oh, well, if you're saying that you don't have enough time to use the bathroom, well, then we're just going to have access to a bladder monitor so we can tell you exactly when to go to the bathroom to, right. minimize, you know, to, to minimize discomfort for you. And also, if you don't go to the bathroom when we say you do, then you're fi- when we say that you should, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, yeah, it's like it's, before a road trip and, 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 the, and your dad's like, all right, everyone use the bathroom because I'm not stopping if you need to go <laughs> when I say you need to go. It's like, right. you're you're going to get your Amazon, uh, your, your Amazon standard issue catheter. Uh, and that, that will, you know, that will take care of this, this issue of having to relieve yourself. You're exactly right here, Alex. And this is the point I was, I was driving as well as like, it's not only that they're out of touch, right? Like Bezos is obviously fucking like out of touch and he, he's a madman. Um, but I do fear that they are getting bolder, that there, that there's a bit of a mask off going on right now. Um, especially yeah. right. Like mm-hmm. talking about that poll, um, that survey of tech workers who are also being like, uh, uh this industry is too powerful. Um, and, and everything that we're doing is overall more harm than good. We talked about these legitimation myths and justification myths and for a long time that you know the tech sector relied on these issues around like the utopia uh progress right like these big lofty ideas is what provided them with this justification that that we are a legitimate industry that is driving human uh kind forward and that's all off the table now no one believes that shit anymore so i do fear Eh, some of them do (laughs) well some of them do for sure i was gonna say i would never one thing i always remind people of is that amazon remains you know there hasn't been a survey in the way there was a couple years ago Mm. but amazon a couple years ago in a survey was one of the most trusted institutions in the united states which to be clear the only things above it we're like the local police and the military. So I just want, <laughs> I, I really, 
Yeah, I'm not someone who like defers to polling or whatever, but I do think we sort of are in, we have the risk of being in a bubble when we say that like no one believes these institutions are good. I certainly don't know anyone who believes the U.S. military is good, but that puts me in the minority (laughs) in this country. (laughs) For sure, for sure. I mean, I think that's a really important point. Yeah, that that survey you're you're referring to, Alex, I think was from 2017. And it was was for Democrats, Amazon was the most trusted institution in the U.S., for Republicans, it was the police, the military, and then Amazon. <laughs> God, country, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, God, I, country, Bezos. <laughs> I, I do just want to say, you know, you brought up Bezos's recent letter to his shareholders, his last letter right before he steps down, that where he was conciliatory about, you know, we do need to do better. And that Ed wrote a piece about how that means we have to, like, train workers' muscles to do better or something. Um, but I just... We have to dis- Discipline labor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will just say again, back to that book I mentioned at the start of this, The Confessions of a Union Buster. You know, it's funny because he lays out like one of his key things was that, of course, the boss always needed to send a letter during towards the end of these campaigns where he said, I understand that I have made mistakes, but you have to give me a chance to do better. And it was the exact language that Jeff Bezos used in that shareholder letter. And the guy clarifies in the book that, you know, usually these words were written by other people. And usually the boss was like, you know, in these cases, was like dead drunk and, you know, autocratic and just wanted to fire everyone who had started the union campaign. And it was this union buster guy who had to like almost physically restrain him and say, no, trust me, you have to send this letter to convince your workers to have faith in you. And obviously it didn't work on many of the workers, but it sometimes was like the key thing that sort of saved the company from losing the, the union vote. And so I just want people to be clear, you know, I've seen a remarkably like credulous reporting on that letter that like Bezos has finally heard the workers from like mainstream people who cover Amazon all the time who aren't radicals. Aaron, but I do think Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Aaron Aaron Ross Sorkin had a fucking Twitter thread where he was just coming on the timeline about how amazing this letter is. So I just wanted to be clear that like this is this this is the standard campaign thing for the boss to do. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like we've all been conned by an abusive lover. Yeah. Abuses you to the very end and you're ready to walk away and then just, and we just keep coming back. And then, you know, they keep finding new ways to drive those needles under your fingernails. There's this discussion about that actually talked about, um, it was with um, Hypervisible and um, Mar Hicks and they, on online. And they were talking about how there was hesitancy among people to, to, to talk about Amazon's campaign in that sort of language, but that, you know, what else do you, how else do we talk about like a company that gaslights everyone that it's hurting and killing and maiming its workers and then getting into very public fights with everyone and then being like, you don't believe this stuff, do you? When like we have evidence the next day and the day before and you know, for years that this is what's going on. We have testimony from the workers that this is what's going on. We have inside investigations that this is what is going on. We have, we, you know, we all know it's going on, but they're just saying like, who are you going to believe? Like you, like me or your lying eyes, you know, like all <laughs> the time. And it is, you know, and then it is wild to see the mainstream coverage from some of these like legacy publications gush over, like you said, what is like just uh, copied over from a union busting campaign, right? The lessons that capital has 
you know, kept among itself is like this form of institutional memory, as we were talking about at the top of uh, the episode, right? Where they know that you just have to say these things over and over again, but each time the business press falls for it, right? Each time they're like, oh my God, this is different. This yeah, is going mean, to open up a new era of Amazon. That's the point of the business press, though, right? That's the point of the business press. Yeah. I mean, Ed, real eyes, real lies, real lies. All right. <laughs> I mean, so your point here is extremely well taken, Alex. It's like, yeah, I don't know how much, you know, in general, people are like, all right, I don't fucking trust these these institutions anymore. Like Amazon has had record-breaking banner years in 20, like every quarter has been a record-breaking quarter in 2020 um, because they are now the infrastructure, right? The, the new buzzword, infrastructure. They are now the <laughs> infrastructure of everyday life during the pandemic in a really serious way. But at the same time, I do... Uh, uh, yeah, thinking about that, that, that I did it like, no, you have to write this conciliatory letter. Um, you can't just be going off the, like off the rails, uh, you know, thinking as well about, yeah, about the bad tweets about the, like, you don't really believe this Senator, uh, you know, and like there was reporting, I think by, uh, Ken Klippenstein that was showing that like, you know, the, the orders for that, those tweets came down. The implication is from Bezos himself was like, you need to be going out there and like defending us. Right. And, and, and it, it leads to these missteps. Um, but I, I do think that, they are feeling the pressure. People like Jeff Bezos, people like Dara Khosrowhashi, uh, you know, the Uber CEO, right? Like these people, I think, are feeling the pressure, but also feeling a bit of that like, okay, y- you want evil? We'll fucking show you evil, right? Like mask off, like, like, like you don't believe our legitimation myths anymore. You don't believe that we're doing progress or, or blah, 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 whatever. All right. We're just going to do what we want. Um, and I, and I think it's like the irony here is that the only constraint is the like union busting consultants who are like, no, 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 put down the, the aluminum bat, put down the Glock Bezos, put it down, <laughs> write this letter. You can't go out there guns blazing. But th- I think that is what they are feeling like they need to and want to do now. Mm-hmm. I mean, totally. I think both those things are happening at the same time, right? Like a company like Amazon and not just Amazon, like other major corporations have made out like bandits from the pandemic, right? We see this with Kroger, like doing its capital strikes on the West Coast right now because they don't want to pay workers more. And so they're just closing stores to be like, fuck you. Don't, you don't get to tell me what to do. Like <laughs> I you know, have made more money than ever. Uber did the same thing, you know, when California tried to actually pass laws, like they said, well, fine, we'll leave this state. And they might have been bluffing, but it, it again was a sort of like, okay, fine, we're not going to pretend to be benevolent. And so I think all these things are going on, but, you know, the sort of restraining or countervailing force here, you know, on the one hand is the sort of publicists or the union busting consultants or whatever who are concerned with the company's image and do sort of know best about how to, you know, okay, boss, like, you know, maybe just to have your like tantrum in private and don't do it on Twitter or something because it's not going to be you know, a good result for you. The other restraint, again, is the workers. Like, they're the only ones who can stop the boss from, you know, breaking the law as they can walk off the job. They can actually speak to what the conditions in those warehouses are or in the delivery vans and whatnot. And that's why there is this distress, right? Is I think, you know, it is more common for people to actually believe what the workers are saying about their conditions right now. And there's also, you know, to be fair, you know, to some degree, 
there are several places in the media that will, you know, actually report what the workers are saying and will take seriously their claims. And so, I mean, that frustrates the CEO more than anything. Um, and as the workers actually build mm-hmm. institutions like unions, you know, there will be legitimate places that, you know, people can point to and say the boss says workers say X, but the workers here are like, you know, posting their own you know statements saying why. And I think that was a big part of the story with Prop 22 was like the companies got to say, no, drivers want this. They want you know the flexibility. And there weren't really powerful, strong, visible institutions where workers could say, no, actually, we're speaking for ourselves right here and we want the opposite. And so that's why that, you know, something like Amazon freaks out when they have a union drive, even if in the scheme of things, it's still, you know, a very minor sort of incursion on their, you know, despotic power over everything is because it starts to build a legitimate institution of workers themselves that can speak for themselves. And that's just something that the business model cannot handle, right? Because their claims are that they know best for, you know, they know what the workers need and no one, you know, everyone else who's pretending to care is just like a woke liberal or something or you know, whatever and being paternalistic. But actually, you know, if if workers are unionizing and building their own institutions, it's much harder to argue with that um, or to, you know, they don't have to care what the boss says. They'll just keep saying what they're experiencing. But yeah, I mean, it was fun to see Amazon sort of freak out <laughs> about this. Um, and there's a reason <laughs> for the, that. There's a reason they're freaking out. And I hope it keeps happening. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned at the the beginning um, to bring it all full circle uh, about how like yeah I mean the the militancy of capital is very much this this institutional memory right even like bringing in the Pinkertons right like it, it seems very like anachronistic but it's the, it is this institutional memory of capital um, and you also talked about how like th- there is a tendency of people on the left um, like ourselves to kind of reach to history reach to the past right I mean we do it on TMK all the time right we we are huge proponents of of Luddism and the Luddites and we're like <laughs> we need to bring this back but and also to be, to be clear the only time I stepped you you know, my dip my toe into podcasting was to do a podcast about E.P. Thompson's mm-hmm. The Making of the Working Class, which was about like, you know, ancient <laughs> class formation. <laughs> so I do think that it is useful to do that. <laughs> To be clear. And, and, and I will mm-hmm. say everyone needs to listen to that series you did with Gabe Renat on um, E.P. Thompson's book. It is, it is such a fantastic walkthrough of what is a fucking brick of a book, but, but an immensely important one packed full of so many great details as well. I mean, even the fact that like the, the industrialists like literally invented time um, that, yeah. like as, as we like understand it now as a way to like proletarianize the peasants. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's exactly. You sound so stoned when you say that to someone. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, you have to read the essay about like the time and the workplace. We didn't even have clocks. <laughs> we didn't wear watches. Yeah. yeah. My friends are like, okay, Alex, whatever. You read that? Clocks you read that are a book? capitalist innovation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's always my favorite party trick to do that to people like you're in a joint circle and you look at somebody and go you hey man did you know that the capitalists invented time <laughs> dream blunt rotation Karl marx ep thompson <laughs> jeremy jeremy yeah always jeremy in the dream blunt rotation i had a dream last night <laughs> that i smoked pot with Karl marx and we listened to jazz Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he would have liked jazz, oh, I think. Oh, my God. <laughs> the point that you were making about, like... <laughs> so, yes, let's, let's pretend to be serious again. <laughs> <laughs> the point you were making, Alex, uh, about, like, yeah, I mean, listening to the the workers' own voices, this is one of the things, you know, again, in terms of, like, we need to build that institutional memory in labor in the same way that capital has, right? That's what we're doing here when we try to talk about like uh, the need for a resurgence of Luddism. That's what we talk about when we are having our occasional series of, of episodes on like real utopias of the past, right? These things that we need to draw inspiration from. Um, but also going back to one of my favorite uh, pamphlets and some one of the reasons why I love your work, Alex, um, is because I think it is squarely in the tradition of um, what Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who is a labor leader with the Industrial Workers of the World, advocated for and talked about in her 1917 pamphlet on sabotage. I'm going to quote a passage here, and it, it, it is exactly what you just said we need to be doing and is necessary for building that worker power. She says, quote, I believe the mission of the intelligent propagandists is this. We are to see what the workers are doing and then try to understand why they do it. Not tell them it's right or it's wrong, but analyze the condition and see if possibly they do not best understand their need and if out of the condition, there may not develop a theory that will be of general utility. Industrial unionism, sabotage, these are theories born of such facts and experiences. But for us to place ourselves in a position of censorship is to alienate ourselves entirely from sympathy and utility with the very people we are supposed to serve. And I think that is exactly right. And I think that is exactly the, what you the point you just made and the tradition of, of how you do your work as a labor reporter. And I think it's also something that we see very little of uh, uh, happening, right? That idea of understanding their conditions, not moralizing, not telling them this is right, this is wrong, you're using the wrong tactics, you need to think strategically, Not, but instead reversing that, right? The point is not to have theory lead praxis, but to build theory out of the, the experiences and conditions of the working class. And I think that is something that we see, um, even on the left, far too little of happening because I think it is so much easier to, to hold a, po a post-mortem like we're doing on something like Bessemer and just talk for two hours about all the things they did wrong, all the things they should have done, all the things I would have done if I was Lennon at the pulpit of Bessemer, right? And it's like, no, motherfucker, you would not have done that and you were not there and you do not understand what they're doing and, and you are trying to lead when you should be following. 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's like the a great mission statement for what I do in my own work. So thank you for giving me that. I'll be sure to use it in the in the future as if I came up with that intentionally. Um, take it, do take it. it. <laughs> Free so, use. So thank Made you for life. that. But I mean, also again, I mean, not to belabor the point, but you know, it's not about necessarily like tailing people or being completely uncritical or anything like that. I certainly consider myself, you know, part of the labor movement, just like you know, anybody else, not just because I'm a labor reporter, but because both I'm a union member and I'm a socialist who, you know, it's a movement and, you know, I'm a part of it. Right. So I don't think it's the case that, you know, people who write about this stuff should never be prescriptive or should never sort of be critical of, of things that have happened. And I think we're actually seeing in a good way, a lot of people across the labor movement right now sort of talking in a, in a constructive fashion for the most part about sort of how to do this differently or better going forward. Um, what happened in Bessemer, you know, there's been obviously contentious things within that, but I think, you know, that, that's inevitable. But, you know, it is the case that this is, you know, it has to be a collaborative thing. You can't convince someone to sort of adopt your argument or your perspective if you can't, you know, you, by telling them that they're wrong, right? That is simply not how organizing works and not how persuading someone works. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the case that people on the left or people who work in media or something like that should start from the place of what are the workers doing? What are they thinking? And how are they experiencing their own conditions on the shop floor and in the community? And then build from there, you know, together as far as what going forward, what can you use from history? What strategies have been tried and haven't? You know, everybody has something to offer in that conversation. But it's yeah, it doesn't start at abstraction. It starts at what is it like working in this warehouse, right? And then where do you go from there? Um, and so I think that is something that people definitely yeah, should keep in mind. Absolutely. And I think the context there that um, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was talking about as well is what we would call now concern trolling, but people concern trolling workers in these places being like, you can't strike you can't sabotage that. No, that, 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 that goes against your own interest, right? Like that, that is actually, uh, 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 you know, unproductive, um, for the labor movement to do these things. Right. And, and that, that is exactly what she was arguing against. And I think that we still see a lot of that happening now, right. Of like, you know, what, no, you need to take the, the, the right tactics, right? That's not striking. That's not sabotage. That's, that's doing something like what we talked about at the beginning of like, no, the union should be the friend of capital, should be collaborating with capital. And, and I think fortunately now, I think there's a, there's an awareness that like this, this is the Democrat line. This is the, this is the woke liberal line. And I, I think it's, uh, it is in itself, uh, uh, unproductive and, and destructive, not, not that kind of constructivism that you were talking about just now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think with that, we'll bring to a close the episode. I mean, this, this has just been fantastic. Uh, what, what, what a dream discussion. What a great conversation, Alex. Where can people find you? Do you have anything to plug? Yeah. Um, so my most of my writing is at Jackman. So if you search my name in Jackman Magazine, you'll find my latest. I freelance a lot of other places, but I've been trying to slow that down because uh, I hate work. Um, <laughs> so I'm, try- <laughs> I'm trying not to do more than I need to. I, I'm also on Twitter at Alex N Press. Um, and what I have to plug, I actually, so we talked about this before the show. I don't, I can't actually plug it because I haven't put out an episode yet, but I am doing a podcast about Amazon um, in part because I'm, I'm starting to write a book about it that I was supposed to be starting before the pandemic started and things sort of threw 
threw me off, but also Amazon now has become like the global empire in a way it wasn't. So I guess it's probably for the best that I waited the year um, to watch that transformation. Um, But the podcast is called Primed. And uh, I guess if you just follow my work, you know, you'll you'll see it when it launches in the next you know month or so. Um, but so that's the project I'm working on. But in the meantime, you know, people are free to read my writing. And I just want to thank you guys Excellent. for having me on the I show. Mean, uh, oh, of course. Thank, thank you, you for, for coming on. Of course. No, all great things that uh, everybody should be mar- marking in their calendar and looking forward to the podcast and the the eventual book. Um, all, all very exciting. Um, great to exciting to know that someone like you, Alex, is 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 like devoting the time, attention, and energy to to do something so necessary. So no, I we we want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. So with that, I guess uh, everyone can find us at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills, where you can get premium episodes every single week. I want to thank Alex again and thank you all for listening and we'll see y'all then. Later.